0: Hey everyone and welcome to the podcast Too Much Disinformation, the pod that uncovers the good, the bad, and the fake of the online world. I'm your host, Rafi Mendelson, and on today's pod, we're going to be talking about deplatforming hate groups and everything that goes into what's involved with de- deplatforming those hate groups. And talking us through this topic is someone who is uniquely experienced and qualified to be able to explain it to us all. Dr. Megan Squire is the Deputy Director for Data Analytics and OSINT at the Southern Poverty Law Centre, a non-profit advocacy organisation specialising in civil rights and public interest litigation. Their work includes monitoring hate groups and other extremists and then exposing their activities to law enforcement agencies, the media and the public. Earlier this year, Megan led research on how hate groups are using cryptocurrency to raise funds. And it's not every day you get to speak to someone with their own Wikipedia page. So let's not waste any more time and start the show. Hey, Megan, how are you doing?
1: Oh, I'm great, Ravi. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thanks for joining us. I'm glad we were able to get a date. We've been speaking and looking at topics, and I'm glad we're able to to unpack the topic we have today. But the first question that I have to ask you is which of the social media platforms, or what was your first social ma- media platform that you joined?
1: So I've been around the internet for a minute. I wasn't sure <laughs> if some of the <laughs> the original sites, and, and uh, or I guess we didn't even have sites back then, but the original services that I used would be considered social media. But Uh, I remember, you know, hopping on AOL back in the 90s. I think uh, President Clinton was still in office at the time. I remember being on Usenet before that, if anybody even knows what that is anymore. Um, Usenet. Yeah, Usenet. So this is the text-based messaging. I guess it's kind of like picture Reddit, but it's only text and not in your browser, and you have to get on it. Command line prompt into it, so yeah, um, that, that's probably dating me. Um, but yeah, I think as far as like modern social media, I think I I got on Facebook in oh my gosh, maybe two thousand four. One of my students actually um, introduced me to it. He was like, "You got to check this thing out. It's the same, uh, you know, it's the social networks that you've been teaching us in class." And and someone made a website for it. I know, oh, that's pretty cool. So.
0: Amazing. And you've never looked back, it sounds like, as well. (laughs)
1: Yeah, sometimes I wish I, yeah, sometimes I, I, you know, you get in there and you see all the the dark stuff on social media and you wish, why did I do this? But um, but yeah, it's been a a journey.
0: So in the lead up to uh, recording this episode, um, we had quite a challenge of discussing all of the different types of topics, all of the different topics that we could cover today. Um, And a lot of your work at the Southern Poverty Law Center, and all of their work is about uh, uh, working against hate groups and extremist groups, and, and part of that process is identifying and then deplatforming them from the uh, from the forum that they have of uh, of social media. And so that's why I think we settled on the topic of uh, of deplatforming. But maybe let's start from the beginning. Uh, and for those who are not aware of what that term means, what is deplatforming?
1: Uh, So when you think about using the internet or using uh, different websites, social media sites, they're owned by someone, right? And those folks get to set the rules of the platform. So you're allowed to do this, you're not allowed to do that. Sometimes these are called like terms of service or platform policies, community guidelines, that kind of thing. And when a user violates those terms or guidelines, there's generally some kind of punishment that goes along with it. And it could be like a short term thing, like, oh, we're going to, you know, Put you in timeout for a few hours or days, all the way up to your banned from the service. Right. So um, that broad, I guess, um, set of actions that a platform can take is kind of generally referred to as um deplatforming. Usually when people say deplatforming though, they mean that final step, like the one where you're actually removed from the service and not allowed to use it anymore but there's a variety of um, steps that, that a company can take before they get to that point.
0: Hmm. Okay, so so D-platform can apply to to anyone or any organization that has breached the terms of service. Yeah,
1: generally, yeah, that's right.
0: And so, and and is there a, because my understanding, <laughs> and I'm sure you're able to put me right, but there's there's kind of an element, a two-size element of this. There are people mm-hmm. who the social media platforms have identified, but then there's also organizations like yourself and and the work that you're doing, which are more proactively uh, having to do quite a lot of work in order to be able to make the case for or to the social media platforms to get them deplatformed. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So let's talk through both of those things. So there's both the users of the platform and then there's the platform itself. And then there's proactive identification of rule breaking and then reactive identification of rule breaking. So we can talk about each of those separately. When you or I use a social media site and we come across content, that's pretty bad, right? You're like, wow, this shouldn't be on the Internet. Um, A lot of platforms have a way for you to report that content, right? So that would be the user taking a proactive step to find content or come across content and then report it to the platform. And then the expectation, of course, is that the platform will act on it, right? The company will take some kind of action and they'll at least respond to you. They might even take action against that reporter, that user, um, that, that you reported. The other thing, though, that um, we should talk about is the companies themselves, n- not necessarily just reacting to user reports, but actually going out and on the, their own services and looking for the bad content. And they can sometimes do that with uh, human moderators, we'll call that content moderation. And then they can also do that with um, algorithms. So, so they'll write software that can uh, look for, you know, instances of keywords all the way up to, you know, using fancy machine learning tools to kind of suss out um, pr- problematic content or, or networks that are growing that um, are spreading disinformation, um, hate speech, that kind of thing, harassment behaviors. So there's both the, um, the user side and the platform side. And then there's both proactive and reactive um, responses to, to um, rule breaking
0: amazing and and on the platform side i presume mm-hmm. neither of those approaches are necessarily the the perfect antidote to <laughs> yeah. the challenge of dealing with
1: yeah there's with, pros with... and cons to to all of that so um uh, you know when the when the platform ha- or the company has to respond to a user complaint right they have to Uh, have enough staff to actually deal with um, answering user complaints. They have to design a complaint or reporting mechanism into their software. You'd you'd be surprised at the number of of social media sites that I've come across that we call them low or no content moderation sites. And there's some that don't even have the ability to report content. It's like they didn't think of it as as a a need. It's kind of strange. Um, But then those companies also have to, if they're going to be a, a, you know, a decently moderated space, they have to staff that up and then usually uh, decide if they're going to embark on uh, algorithmic or software-based solutions too. So that can be mm-hmm. kind of expensive. It can be uh, error-prone, right? Like those systems have to be designed and built and tested. And there's, you know, sometimes a lot of, uh, I guess, just errors with how those are rolled out, so. mm
0: and so, away from the social media platforms and onto the work that that, that you're doing, mm-hmm. um, how do you approach that? Because yeah, that sounds like a pretty big task to be able to monitor and police the internet yeah, and then yeah. do something with it. How do you approach it?
1: It's fraught because we, you know, we track and expose extremists, hate groups, individuals, all, all of that stuff online. We're trying to keep keep the the pulse of what's going on on social media and on um, just in the world as far as hate and extremism and so we come across a lot of you know harmful content online everything from you know harassment of users all the way up to you know straight up nazi propaganda being I mean, violent speech everything so the question is always you know does it rise to the level of reporting how do we report it how do you get this content removed or how do you get remedies for the people who are being harassed online right so it's just this it's it's constant it's basically every single day um, some platforms are more responsive than others some reach out and want help from folks like me and other ones don't want to hear my name (laughs) so um so yeah it it really runs the gamut from platforms that actually take pride in the fact that they don't do content moderation all the way up to the Mm. ones who are constantly tinkering with their policies and their um, approaches so it just depends on um it depends on the platform itself but we do we do hope right that the um the platforms the companies will take our reports seriously and that they will reach out and be proactive it's a mixed mm. bag
0: mm. and so uh, obviously your your work th- there's a, a whole load of different conversations online i'm not going to be surprising everyone by saying you know, there's a lot being covered good and bad your work is focused on hate groups extremist right-wing hate groups um and and so when you said every day Uh, this is a difficult question i appreciate but can you give a sense of the scale that we're talking about
1: oh wow okay so there's a lot of different ways to measure this and measurement as a data scientist right like measurements kind of my kind of my jam but we we have a lot of different ways of taking that pulse or taking um producing i guess sensors or metrics to measure the scope and scale of the problem so for years i mean decades Southern Poverty Law Center has produced um, what we call the hate map, right? It's like the count of how many groups there are in each category, in each, you know, hate ideology or extremist ideology. And we have certain standards for how, you know, what the group has to do to be able to be listed. We also keep track of different really high profile extremist individuals, right? And Produce reports about about those folks. So that's one way of measuring: is the number of groups increasing, decreasing? Is a certain ideolo- ideology gaining traction or losing ground? That sort of stuff. There's also many, many more new, newer ways, right, of tracking um, and measuring the both the impact of hate and extremist groups, but also their presence, right? Whether they exist or not, how active they are how convincing they are, how much money they're making and all of that. So I spend a lot of time in that space kind of developing those newer metrics. The big challenge there is finding the data. <laughs> so uh, if we're talking about social media companies, for example, they don't tend to be too free with their data um, in terms of, you know, people like me studying it. So even if I had a simple question like how many Groups got deplatformed last year on Facebook, and in what ideologies and for what reasons? There's no way I'm gonna be able to get that information uh, from them, mm. although it would be incredibly helpful, right, to us for understanding the size and scope of problem X on social media company Y. Um, so, mm. yeah, we're constantly uh, looking, scanning the landscape for new and exciting data sources that'll help us answer those questions and build those sensors
0: and i think that's an interesting point you made is is the uh, kind of just the number of maybe pieces of content or 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 pro- profiles people or groups but also what you've pointed to there was also the scale and the impact uh, and and is that a consideration when you evaluate what steps to take because obviously there might be someone who's kind of shouting out into the equivalent of an empty room or into the wind but then there might be other groups or other profiles who have incredible uh, impact and, uh, you know, uh,
1: uh,
0: on, on the wider conversation.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And again, we can look at, there's, you know, kind of two axes there, right? There's the the amount of harm that's able to be done by this person. So how, how powerful are they? How big is their audience? How big is their voice right now? How big is their platform? Right. And then there's um, the the other scale of how uh, the, the, the sense of vitriol, right? How bad is their rhetoric? What, what, what are they? Is it actual, you know, they're cl- calling for violence in the streets, that kind of thing? They're arming followers, or is it more just um, kind of lighter touch um, speech? So we take all of that into account when looking at a harm, you know, the potential for harm. Um, yeah. It's a, it's a bit of an equation. There's other stuff that goes into there too. Like, do you feel like if they're on social media platform X, will that platform even respond to you? do you have any chance of getting them? Remed- I mean, do you have hope mm. here or is it, you know, barking up a, a, the wrong tree? Um, yeah. so yeah, there's a lot that goes into the equation.
0: And you mentioned about the way that you guys track and the annual report that you put out tracking generally speaking and also across all the platforms um i don't know if this is something that you track but do do you see uh, well first thing first question is i presume you are seeing an increase big picture generally speaking on the amount of hatred online that's something i presume but feel free to challenge me
1: yeah i mean there's increases in different areas too so and and it ebbs and flows and different groups will become more powerful or more popular more you know whatever, getting dangerous um, over time, that that definitely changes. So that's one of the, the challenges is making sure that you have the full scope of what's happening right now. And you're not just tracking the same stuff you tracked last year, because there might be new things. Um, mm-hmm. So that's, you know, unfortunately, there's many ways to hate, right? And so those, um, it's a moving target, really. But yeah, um, we measure uh, annually, but we also measure daily. And I mean, any given day of the week, um, you know, yeah, ebbs and flows. Things could be up, down, sideways. This year, the big splash on the year in hate report that was um, put out by our our research squad um, was the uh, rise of what they're calling anti-student inclusion groups. So this would be like what you might have heard of, like radical parenting groups in the U.S. So there are groups that are, you know, anti-vaccine, anti-LGBT you know, they're the ones ripping books out of the libraries and stuff like that for having gay characters, things like this. So um, that was a group that um, we – or a set of groups that we began to list this year that we didn't um, list last year. So it may look like there's a giant increase this year because because of that new group, but then meanwhile some other category might have kind of fallen off. So it just differs each time.
0: And the follow-up question to, to that is I don't know if you see – yeah you know, online hatred doesn't act in isolation it's connected to real life events and physical mm-hmm. events do you see a correlation or do you see a rise around specific offline events as well
1: yeah it's funny that that's a, one of the things that i'm interested in measuring is if even if a group or an individual starts off online without much of an offline presence right they don't they don't have physical followers in the real world they're kind of just an online a keyboard warrior does does that stay true all the time or do they almost always make a move to doing something offline? And I'm really curious about sussing out what that percentage is, right? Is it 50% of them eventually do something online or offline or are there folks that are true holdouts forever? And does that differ across uh, the, the medium that they're using? For example, do video streamers uh, act differently than uh, meme generators on Twitter, that that sort of stuff. So that's a really good question. I don't think I have a solid answer for a consistent, you know, statistically valid um, trajectory all the time. But we certainly see all of those behaviors. Yeah, we see people who definitely move to an offline, um, real world posture. And then we see folks that that don't tend to do that. I'm curious if You know, if I can find more patterns in that behavior, whether it's ideologically Mm. based, geographical, some kind of demographic, something like that, we might not have enough data to prove that out. But yeah, that's an ongoing. um, It's a really good ongoing question.
0: That's, that's incredible. I I presume it's it's incredibly challenging, Mm -hmm. but also what you've Mm -hmm. actually, what you've outlined is that there's two sides of that. There's the uh, offline activities that result in a spike Mm -hmm. or result in an increase in, and then there is also the online activities that might then result in a, in, in a physical event, you know, we sometimes kind of at, at cyber we refer, refer to it as from post to protest mm, yeah. right the kind of conversation happens and there's a bit of organization and then and we've tracked that across yeah. numerous countries That's right. um where where we see that kind of activity um i want to kind of get back to the kind of deplatforming mm-hmm. and how you approach that um what are those investigations or how do you how do you even begin or how do you uh, start collecting the, the the evidence or make the case that you then can then take to the platforms?
1: Yeah. So the first step is getting on the platform, right? So you have to create a lot, you end up creating a lot of accounts. Um, those accounts might have different purposes. So sometimes, most of the time when I do my work, it's very passive. I'm just observing, right? So I'll to get the, get the lay of the land on a new platform so threads just came out the other day everybody's talking about what what's going on on there and oh my goodness can you believe that extremists are on here and I'm like yep I sure can <laughs> they're, they're gonna go to the new place too just like you are to check it out and see if they can you know see if they can get an angle um, suss out the content moderation policy see if there are any right and so that, that's the first step is getting on that platform seeing how it works now uh, for my work, because I'm a computer scientist, I'm really concerned about the different algorithms the platform is using, what technical affordances are on that platform. So that means, like, what are the features that it has, and what I've found is that depending on uh, the extremist group or the hate group, the different platforms uh, will be more or less appealing to them, depending on what they are trying to accomplish. So, for example, uh, if the group is uh, taking a very secretive a posture, they are going to want something like encrypted messaging, right? If they're, um, they they might see that as a need, other groups that aren't doing so much secretive stuff, and are maybe more propaganda based are going to look for platforms that have big audiences that allow a lot of media uh, to be posted, maybe they have uh, file storage capabilities, that kind of stuff. So I will go to a new platform. And I'll immediately look around and say, Okay, what does this get my audience with or you know the bad guys right like what is this going to get them are they going to find their way over here or is it going to be too you know hard to use too uninteresting too much like x other platform that they're already on and then i'll also do an assessment to see what the content moderation looks like so okay imagine i see bad content here let's go ahead and do a couple test reports to see what happens and then i can kind of classify it in my mind as like okay this is a low a low content moderation platform this is going to be a problem or, oh, they seem pretty on the ball, uh, this looks good. And then finally, I'll do an assessment to see about money-making strategies. So again, this would be a, kind of a, a subset of technical affordances, right? Like if the platform allows um, money-making in some fashion easily, that's a red flag for me. That's a huge, um, something that I'm gonna definitely take into account. The reason is a lot of these groups and individuals don't have good ways of making money normally, like like you and I do, we go to work, you know, we do a lot of these guys, this is their job, right, is to um, promote hate in the world, sadly. And so if a technical platform allows them a way to make money off of that, for example, by taking tips during video streaming, by selling merchandise, uh, using cryptocurrencies, things like that, then that's gonna be something that I'm gonna take very very close um attention to and definitely pay attention to that and see how much money is changing Mm. hands and how easy is it them for them to you know kind of stay under the legal radar with that money so yeah
0: wow so that's interesting that brings in a whole other motivation of course one side is to be able to broadcast your views to as many people Mm -hmm. as possible and to to reach those people but then the second side you're saying is that actually it's it's to be able to fund those individuals fund themselves to be able to continue to, to broadcast those views to as big an audience as possible. That's, That's right. really interesting. Yeah. Um, and then in, in terms of, so depending on the platform, you know, if you have a streaming site, then, then it's pretty, well, I'd imagine it's easier to see who that person is, but, but how, on other sites, how much do people hide behind <laughs> personas or hide behind fake accounts?
1: Oh. Very frequently. Like, yeah, <laughs> even people who show their faces sometimes will have a an alternate name that they use for themselves. But you'd be surprised the video streaming sites. A lot of times um, they'll mask up on there. They use like the kind of full face mask or they don't even show their face. They'll just use the, the avatar like you would see in a zoom screen when the person has their camera off. They'll just put that up. There's a numerous, um, you know, hundreds of streamers that come on every day and do that, where they just have kind of a group a group chat and everybody's just an avatar, an icon. So yeah, they, they hide, um, they'll hide their face, their physical appearance, they'll hide their location, uh, obviously creating fake names, little, you know, alts or whatever. Uh, so yeah, that, that's, that's challenging, but you know, a lot of times you can still find out who the person is. Um, there's whole suites of techniques for doing that, which is probably a completely different call, but yeah, once you, um, and, and, you know, honestly, for, for the purposes of deplatforming. If the behavior is breaking terms of service, and it's bad enough, right? It doesn't matter if the platform knows who the person is. They'll just ban the account. The problem Mm. then, though, is then the account gets recreated, Um, you know, Mm -hmm. sometimes with the same name, same brand, but sometimes the person will just rebrand and create an entirely new persona for themselves, pick right up where they left off, so...
0: Mm. And part of your role, in fact, part of your title is um, is OSINT. And so we're, if we're still in that part of the conversation where we're talking about investigations and your, your monitoring, et cetera, we had actually episode seven, for anyone listening that's interested, we had a, a conversation about uh, a whole podcast about what is OSINT, so you can feel free to check that out. Um, but in terms as an OSINT analyst, data scientist, um, you know, of course, there are a plethora of tools and techniques etc but generally speaking how do you what is OSINT to you and how do you use those techniques in order to be able to achieve what you're trying to do
1: yeah so using publicly available data uh to learn the answer to a question that you have that's how i um kind of define OSINT, really simply typically though when people are talking about it they're referring to i guess a suite of tools and techniques that lies somewhere between uh, active human intelligence gathering. So with OSINT, you're typically not, you know, infiltrating groups or uh, doing spy kind of work, that sort of thing. It does tend to be a little bit digitally focused, so c- computer-based. And then there's this idea that it's uh, data that's public, that you it might even be free. So typically you'll kind of draw the line at data that you have to pay for. That's generally not considered OSINT, but if it's publicly available and aggregated, um, that's that that sometimes still counts. There's, I guess the interesting part about OSINT for me is that if it's publicly available, like what's the challenge, right? Like, so that's where hmm. you have, to, it's kind of like a little bit tricky to be a good at OSINT. You have to be able to find the data that, yeah, it's out there, but people didn't know what it meant or they couldn't find it or it wasn't easy to use. And then you correct the case right and by figuring out the way to make that um hiding in data that's hiding in plain sight into something that's mm. useful so an example of that um this has to do with money and deplatforming a little bit so if you don't mind I'll, um, an example of that would be i was looking at this platform one time called d live it was a video stream it is a video streaming platform that was used by a lot of gamers so you go in and play your video game and people could you know watch you playing they could hop on a on a voice chat and and talk to you, or they could you know, text chat while you're playing the video game, kind of watch watch your moves and jokes and stuff like that. Well, a bunch of hate groups and extremists and you know, just generally vile people started using this platform to not play games, but to do their pr- propagandizing. Um, it was a, a no, no content moderation platform or extremely low content moderation platform. It didn't even have a button to report content when it first started. Mm-hmm. And and it was allowing folks to make a lot of money on this platform. So I was curious. I said, well, I wonder if I can find a way to figure out how much they're earning. So OSINT skills kicked in, and I ended up finding an undocumented programmer's API that the site was using to run itself. Um, That's a a way for software developers to access the back end of a system. It wasn't obvious when looking at the platform, but if you poked around just a little bit, I, you know, it was pretty easy to see. So I just got some software together to scrape out all of those transactions that were happening on the site. I uh, did a little bit of math and figured out that in the group of uh, folks that I was studying, it was about 150 people on there. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars changing hands. One of the guys that I studied made over $100,000 in 10 months Um, on the platform ended up uh, promoting the January 6th insurrection or other folks on that uh, video streaming site that streamed from inside the Capitol on the site and made money on the site doing it. After that incident, they finally, the website finally took action and um, banned those users. They deplatformed those users. But about 18 months later, just last month, uh, one of the users was let back on the site again to keep going. So it's um, it's a never ending battle. Mm.
0: But even in the investigation side, it's you, know, you mentioned uh, about uh, kind of hiding in plain sight, right? There's mm-hmm. so much data, yeah. so there's step. You know, one part of it is getting all of that data or finding mm-hmm. it through the you know through the the firehose of so much information. Um, but then the second part is the context, as you said, that That's kind right. of other that that digging in, but also the context of okay, what are they saying and and mm-hmm. you know how are they uh, having an impact with their words and with their content um yeah. so uh, one of the things i wanted to ask you and you referred to it just now in terms of they are being deplatformed, a challenge must be then the whack-a-mole scenario mm-hmm. where okay deplatformed, and then it it probably set them back but maybe here they are again on the same platform or a different platform or creating a different avatar you know how do you approach that
1: Yeah, uh, with a lot of patience because and and the mindset that they're going to do that. So just know from the beginning, it's not going to be one and done. You're not going to get somebody removed from a platform and they're gone forever. They're almost certainly going to come back. In fact, I can't even think of a case where people didn't try at least once to come back. Um, The trick is just finding that, finding it in a timely manner, and then hoping that the platform's responsive. There was a case that I was working on a couple years ago where there was a video streamer who had been removed from YouTube and kind of did the downward spiral down to, to some homemade s- site there, but eventually even got removed from, from that site. And he decided to go back to YouTube and kind of start the cycle again. I thought, oh, here we go again. Wow. It took you it took me a year to get you down to this level. Now you're back up at the top, starting over again. Um, there's a lot of turnover on the platforms and sometimes they forget that they already banned somebody the first time. So you have to convince Mm. them again. It's like, you're just constantly making the case and hoping that they're listening to you and hoping that that nice person that you talked to six months ago still works there. So it's, it can be very challenging. And then you've got the active, um, you know, platforms that just actively don't care. Um, Mm. they, they want you to go away. They don't want to take action on anything you're giving them um, yeah, it's just a, it's a, a fraught situation.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like a, a huge challenge, but one that you are, uh, you know, tackling and, and, and heading straight on. Um, and, and you mentioned some of the research that you've done and will include in the show notes, uh, the links to, to a lot of that. Um, it seems, uh, almost like a silly question to ask you, the final question that we ask each guest, because we've mm-hmm. covered so much of this in the conversation, yeah. um, but I'd love for you to just give us briefly uh, one good thing, one bad thing, and one fake thing that okay. you're seeing in the online space. Although we've kind of covered all of those, but yeah. uh, I'd be uh, I'd love to hear.
1: Well, I'll try to keep them around. Deplatforming, too. There's a lot of good stuff happening out there. But one of the things that heartens me the most is it's we seem to have a better sense a better sense of awareness, right, of, mm. of online harms right now. And that makes me glad because that means if once we acknowledge there's a problem, right, then you can do something about it. So that makes me happy. Um, as far as bad, oh my goodness, where do I start? In alphabetical order, no. Um, <laughs> there's, there, I guess um, I am noticing a bit of, on the platform side, a bit of, um, I think they're getting tired of playing the content moderation game. And so I'm seeing a lot of apathy. I'm seeing a little less energy around uh, coming up with cool solutions, a little more like, well, I don't know, laissez-faire kind of throwing their hands up in the air. And that's worrisome. Uh, as far as what's fake, gosh, I don't know. Uh, I think the thing that tires me the most, I do a lot of work on tracing um, cryptocurrencies and tracing funding and financing and all of that. And so the you know scams and NFTs and all this nonsense, um, I, yeah, I'm really over that. So hopefully... The- Hopefully that's on its way down. I think I saw a meme the other day that showed an NFT that someone bought for, I don't know, $300,000 and it was now worth $300 or something. So maybe people will finally wake up and see that this is uh, not something they want to invest in.
0: Fantastic. A great answer to the question. Um, and I have definitely learned a lot over the last half an hour or so, and I'm sure our listeners have as well. So really thank you for making the time to talk cool. through the work that you're doing and talk through this as a, as a concept. And uh, yeah, uh, for everyone, for Megan, thank you very much for coming on and for everyone listening. Have a great day, everyone.